This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing powering America's future with oil man T. Boone Pickens. A barrel of oil costs about half of what it did a year ago, and that's good news for the U.S. economy. Drivers are paying less at the pump, and America is sending less money overseas. But the slump has a downside. Energy companies are laying off employees and laying down their oil rigs. And Americans are buying more gas-guzzling cars that are a big source of carbon pollution. Over the next hour, we will talk about oil, natural gas, the new geopolitics of energy, and probably a little Oklahoma football. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club series on ethics and accountability, underwritten by the Charles Travers Family Foundation. T. Boone Pickens is head of BP Capital, an energy investment company, and a legend in the oil industry. Please welcome him to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. I I want to make it opening remark. This is my fourth time to the Commonwealth Club. Welcome back. And uh, it was the second time I was here, which had to have been 20 years ago. And uh, it wasn't in this location. But uh, I've said, sometimes I don't say it anymore, that if I'm leaving right after I speak, I'd say if anybody wants to go to Amarillo, Texas, that's where I lived at the time. I said, if anybody is here, wants to go to Amarillo, Texas, I'm going. I've got room to take you. <laughs> <laughs> not me. There you aren't going to find 200 people in a room that wants to go to, I mean, not 200, but you're not going to find one or two people to go to Amarillo, Texas. And so this guy raised his hand. And so I, I, I said, uh, you want to go to Amarillo? I said, yes. And I introduced myself to him. He said, well, I'm Scott McCart. Yeah, I said, you're uh, Roy Ann McCart's son. And he said, that's right. And he said, my mother's sick. And if I could, I said, yeah, come on, jump in. But uh, it was at the Commonwealth Club, I picked up one. And over a period of time, asking people if they want to go to Amarillo, Texas, I picked up people three times out of <laughs> Out of probably 50 or 100 offers. So, I don't say Dallas. I'd get more than that. Yeah. <laughs> Your dad got into the oil industry in 1923, almost 100 years ago. There have been lots of cycles that you've seen up and down. Almost 23, my mother and dad got married. I was born in 28, five years later. So you've seen a lot of ups and downs in the energy industry. Is this recent down cycle just like the others, or is it different in any way? Oh, it's much different. When you go back to the, you had the one, what, 08, that was a market uh, reaction. But you had the one in 86 that people try to compare to. And 86, that was brought on by Bill Casey, you remember, CIA director. And he convinced uh, uh, President Reagan to get the Saudis to overproduce, flood the market, and break the Russians. Do you remember that? 
I remember and, Bill Casey. Yeah, that's in the book Victory, and it's it's worth reading. It was a very very interesting. Uh, it wasn't a story, but uh, it was what happened at that point in time. But this time, the United States is the one that overproduced, which is incredible. And this geologist, listen, I, I'd have given you 101 odds that never again would the United States ever be at the level of production that we are. We're producing 9.5 million barrels a day. And we went all the way down to 4.5 million and uh, and have come back from four and a half to nine and a half. And Saudi Arabia is playing a very different role this time. They've been the, controlling the spigot that effectively controls the world oil price. What are they doing differently this time? Are they trying to break frackers, American frackers in Texas and Pennsylvania? I don't believe, no. I, I, listen, I've had more respect for Naimi, uh, their oil minister. And I said one time, I was on CNBC, and they said, you know, you've predicted oil prices 21 times on this show, and you've been right 18 times. How do you do it? And I said, that guy that works for the Saudis, I said, Naomi, I said, I'll watch what he says, and two weeks later, I say the same thing he does. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't exactly right. But, but the man, one, is smart, and I think he, he wants credibility just like I do. I don't want to get up in front of a crowd and say something stupid, and I don't want to get up and try to mislead somebody. He doesn't either. The guy wants credibility, and he said this when the price fell out. Well, normally, the cartel is not a cartel any longer. OPEC is a trade association, is what it is, because the only company, uh, country that can uh, that has the flexibility to lower or raise production are the Saudis. And so they're the ones that were the swing producer and they, they accepted the role and, and were the swing producer. When the price came down, they would adjust supply to balance the market and bring the price back up. They weren't trying to take advantage of anybody. I mean, they have social commitments in their country just like the rest of them, the Iranians and everybody else, social commitments, they're taking care of people that are not working is what it amounts to. And so they have over 50% unemployed, so they're, they're having to take care of them. I've had people say, well, the Saudis could produce for $5 a barrel. No question they could if you didn't have the social commitments that they have. And when they tell you they've got to have $90 a barrel to meet those commitments, it's uh, they also have cash reserves of over eight hundred billion dollars, so they can hold out for a long time. But to balance their budget, they've got to have ninety dollar oil. How is this affecting Russia? The low oil prices is it helping Putin or hurting them? Boy, yeah. I mean, it really, it hurts them. Russia, you know, you, when you look at Russia, you're looking at a country that now is poor. Their economy is weak. They don't have many industries. They're not, they're not competing well. Uh, I said the other night, I said they only have three things. I said they have oil and gas, which is kind of the, the backbone of everything. I said they have vodka, and they drink most of it. And uh, I said, and they have caviar, and I said anybody has it once, they don't go back and get any more. And 
I then immediately was, the guy was in touch with me from New York. He said, I'm the, I market uh, Russian vodka here. And Mr. Pickens, we, it is a business and we do have, and he sent me a case of Russian vodka. <laughs> so I thanked him. I don't drink vodka. So. You were a peak oil advocate not, not long ago mm-hmm. and thought that the dwindling supply of petroleum, that the big fields had already been found. Um, and re- reading your book, uh, that the first billion is the hardest, which was published in 2008, it seems... It was the hardest, too. But, yeah? Yeah. I, I was I was 70-something before I was worth a billion dollars. I ran it up to five pretty fast and then lost two, gave away one, had one left, and I don't know what happened to the other one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a good thing you don't drink vodka because that, you know, that could have been... I, I quit. I didn't drink. I never was a vodka drinker, but I did. I did drink scotch. My dad said to me one time. He said, "Son, there are three things I don't like about you." I said, "What are they?" And he said, "Well, one said you drank scotch instead of bourbon," and uh, he said, "I'm always suspicious anybody drinks scotch." And he said, second, my dad was a landman in the industry, and I'm a geologist." And so he said, "The second was that you never did smoke cigars," and. I said, okay. I said, those are not too bad. And he said, and I said, what's the third one? He said, landmen can pick locations as good as geologists can. And I said, well, by golly, if that's all problems we have, I said, we got a pretty good relationship. <laughs> and we did have, we had a great relationship. And you wrote that you were going to be a veterinarian, and it was your dad that guided you toward geology and, and oil. Is that right? Well, my dad... Uh, uh, yes, I went to Texas A&M. You won't believe this. I was five nine and white, and I went down there as a basketball player. <laughs> how, did, how did that work out? Well, they didn't renew the the scholarship the next year, <laughs> and I transferred to Oklahoma State. And oh, two or three years ago, they had the Twelfth Man Magazine, which is Texas Aggie Magazine. The Ten worst mistakes they made. The third one was when he cut Boone Pickens off a twenty-five dollar a month scholarship. <laughs> so uh, on energy, it seemed like you know peak oil and then hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. Two technologies came together, and it seemed to me that reading your book that you were surprised by that. You, that the the tremendous uh, new supply in America becoming the Saudi Arabia of oil. You didn't see that coming. Well, I'm not dead on peak oil. Um, every Still possible? Pla- every place but here has has peaked. There's no additions from any other countries except Iraq. And, uh, and Iraq has oil to be found and produced. But the rest of the world's pretty... I mean, if you go back and look at the last five years... You've increased demand by 7 million barrels a day, and the United States has provided five of that. So it's uh, the, the, rest, the rest of the world's pretty well peaked, and uh, you didn't get what you wanted out of Brazil. It's, it's not what they thought they had. And additions that the world thought they would have have all been provided by the United States, which was horizontal drilling and multiple fracks in the horizontal hole. Cuba's about to open up. Is there significant oil in Cuba? Cuba? 
<laughs> Cuba doesn't, doesn't have any more oil in it than Vermont. Okay, all right. There's going to be some people who are disappointed, think that there is oil in Cuba. Oh, they think they've got something off there between the United States and Cuba. And there's been, of course, a lot of seismic work done in there. But you don't see any big oil fields off Florida. You have Destin Dome is the only one. That's probably not over trillion cubic feet of gas, which is not a lot. So advocates of hydraulic fracturing would say this new technology came along, unleashed new supply that a lot of people didn't anticipate, and that peak oil is therefore bunk and bogus. You're saying that that's not necessarily true, that fracking won't uh, have a long-lasting increase in world supply, this new technology. Well, we don't know what it's going to do around the world, but you have to assume that if you have oil fields, you have source rock. And these shale fields that are developed, that is source rock, meaning that's where the oil and gas were formed. And due to heat and pressure, they were squeezed out and into what we call, you know, conventional reservoirs, sandstones, limestones, and dolomites. And I said we'd found all the big ones in those conventional reservoirs. And uh, and we pretty well have in the United States. But... Then we showed up with all the shale. But there's a reason for this. You're, uh, there have been, oh, five million wells drilled in the world today since you first started drilling wells. And the over half of them are in the United States. So that's interesting. That uh, Why do we have over half of the wells drilled? Do you know why? We started doing it first. No, not really. Uh, the reason is, is, is uh, do you know what freehold minerals are? No. In the United, United States is the only country that minerals are owned oh. by people like us in this room. It all started because those minerals have been sold, but they've been sold by the original owners sometimes. Sometimes they haven't. But that if you bought a farm... You got everything below it. Not any place else in the world. We're the only place you have that. So you look at the United States and say, well, is that the reason? You got it. That that freehold, the ownership by individuals caused the development to be much greater in the United States than the rest of the world because you go to Poland, Australia, Canada even, and federal government owns the minerals below the surface. And in California, there's something called the Monterey Shale, which could be a huge new deposit. Uh, It hasn't been cracked yet. Do you think there's promise in the Monterey Shale in California? Sure. You've already had Exxon drill off the Bravo platform uh, offshore California, I don't know, five years ago. And they drilled the longest at that time. The Russians have one that's 100 feet longer, I think now, 25,000 feet. They drill back to shore in California, Monterey Shale. And uh, sure, it's, it will be productive. But And here you've got, I don't know, some more on fracking or something in California. And uh, uh, I was asked about that in New York on a TV show. said, the governor here in New York has put a moratorium on fracking uh, in New York State. And what do you think about that? And I said, well, you saw what he said. He said he put a, a moratorium on it until he understood what fracking was. 
That sounds like a responsible leader that would say that. Now, he needs to find out what it is, decide what he's going to do. But I also said that gas in western New York is very similar to gas in eastern Pennsylvania. Been there 300 million years. It isn't going to go anyplace. Meaning, they don't want to frack it this year or next year. But they will drill those wells, and they will frack. And in California, you will drill. But you, what, what is going to happen in California if you don't want to drill it now? It's, uh, because those landowners, they will they'll start suing. They want their property developed because it has great value. Uh, if they have a farm or a ranch on uh, the acreage there, well, you'll have Monterey, if you have Monterey shale under it, it'll be productive. And they'll want income from it. And they're entitled to it, and they, it will happen. And fracking is happening in California, and Governor Jerry Brown has resisted calls to, to put a moratorium on fracking. It's been regulated, but it's definitely happening. It's been happening in California for, for decades. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is the oil investor T. Boone Pickens. I'm Greg Dalton. You can follow this conversation on Twitter using the handle. You know, you and I, Greg, talked a while before. Uh, I want you, I want to ask you some questions about climate. Ah, okay. Fire away. See, he he was here to get me and (laughs) (laughs) no, I, you know, you and I talked a little while before. I, I, I think that, yes, we have done some things to to the uh, atmosphere. Uh, we've had a lot of emissions out of these vehicles and everything else. But uh, And uh, if we think we have messed something up, then we should go to work on it. We shouldn't wait till it's confirmed that we've messed it up. Go ahead and start, let's start doing something. And, but I've said this for years. So... In fact, I watched your TED Talk, and the very beginning of your TED Talk says you accept global warming, and you, you have a good record on that. It, it, it's hard for a geologist because, I mean, this uh, planet is, you know, four and a half billion years old. And we can go back in time and look, and we've had periods that have gone for millions of years of high CO2, you know, much more than we've ever seen today CO2 in the atmosphere and that came from volcanoes and and so we know that there have been four four and a half billion years there have been a lot of different climate changes over that period but you didn't have the people here seven uh, billion people that's right. right they didn't have the people that's addition to what they didn't have but they still had you know huge swings in what happened you've had droughts that went on you know for thousands of years Right. So, so is it hard to talk about this in Texas, climate change? Do we? Yeah. Do we talk about it? You mean just kind of bump into somebody on the street? <laughs> <laughs> Last time you were here, I remember one of the things you said. We have a saying in Texas, whatever you're talking, you're talking about money. Um, so uh, You do the same thing in California. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about money. I mean, no kidding anybody. Mm-hmm. We all like to make money. Uh, that's what one of the things that makes America so attractive to the world is that I started out when I left Oklahoma State with a degree in geology, a wife and a baby, and went to Bartlesville, Oklahoma. I had a job when I got there, and I graduated on a Saturday, 
and I went to work Monday morning. I had $150 when we left Stillwater and went to Bartlesville. And I told you what I had made and lost and all. And that opportunity, it, it's for everybody if you want to go after it. And I think that's unique about our country. That Certainly served us well. I'd like to do a, do a lightning round here and ask you a series of yes or no questions. Just quick okay. yes or no. Um, the U.S. economy needs to move away from fossil fuels to cleaner forms of energy. Yes no. or no? No. Investing in coal is a good move. No. BP Capital has made a lot of money in the last six years. Yes. <laughs> now, why do you laugh at me on that? <laughs> you, you, I hope you did. Congratulate. Yeah, it's, sure. well, it's a little, I mean, that was, the economy was in bad shape in 2009. That was when President Obama came in. Um, next question here for Boone Pickens in our lightning round. The Koch brothers are strengthening American markets and democracy. I'm pretty much in agreement with the Kochs. There's some things I don't agree with. I, you said give you yes or no. I'd say yes. Okay. Uh, we can come back to that. Shell oil is going to lose a lot of money trying to drill in the Arctic. Yes or no? That's all a timing issue. I'd say now. It's, I wouldn't do it. College athletes should be paid and get a share of the economic prosperity that flows from their performance. You know, I, I'm into that subject pretty good, and I, and I was one of the early ones that, that said you should give, you know, yes, they should give some. Not, I'm not talking about going out and paying thousands of dollars. I'm talking about my idea was give them $300 a month. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, if what it was is the guys get there, they, they, they can't go, they eat. At the training table, food's good. It's fixed for them and gets the best results for their bodies, and it's the right thing to do. But they like to have a night off every once in a while too. And so I, I went. I lived in an athletic dorm at Texas A&M. That was a long, long time ago. But anyway, I, I would like to see them get some stipend that to help them uh, look like the rest of the students on the campus. Last question. Uh, California is a better state than Texas. Well, better for what? Yeah. <laughs> Money, love, sex, business. I don't know. Hmm. Um, <laughs> business. Business? Business. I don't think there's any comparison. Yeah, no, that's a bad one because California is, is difficult, high well, cost. Listen, in Texas, we can balance the books. And, and yeah, you're starting to look like Washington. Uh, well, b- back on uh, the Koch brothers. Um, the the Koch brothers. Where do you disagree with them? Well, I, I got disagreement with them over natural gas. <clears throat> they said I was wanting subsidies from the government, which wasn't so. And what I wanted was a tax refund uh, and. Uh, I actually, I got 54 votes, and I needed 60 for my bill to pass, and I got 54, so I lost, of course. But, uh, yeah, I know the Cokes from, from, you know, way back, been friends of mine and, and all, and they're, I think they're patriotic Americans, and they're very conservative. One thing that uh, has been in the news lately is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, where the United States buys oil off the market, puts it in the ground, 
Uh, is that a market? You know, you know how much is in there now? How much is in there? 697 million barrels. That's what Secretary Monet told me um, three or four months ago. And is that a price support? Is that is that a hidden subsidy? Because when the government buys that oil, it takes it off the market. Does it does it keep well, the price? Well, but who's it a subsidy for? Uh, good question. You know it better than I do. No, see, I don't. Uh, do you remember? You remember when that bill passed? No. It was okay. after the Arab embargo in '73, and they said, "Gosh, we got to get it. plenty of oil to give us thirty, sixty days." just in case this happened to us again. And uh, so they decided to put 700, up to 750 million barrels. I don't think they ever got their right 700 now, and I think that's about as high as they've gone. But the most we've drawn out in times of Katrina was the biggest drawdown out of the SPR was 18 million barrels. And now the United States is truly... If you had an energy plan where you switched natural gas over to heavy-duty trucks, you would be energy independent. That's, all, that's about all you'd have to do to get there. But you are energy secure today because of Canada and Mexico. We, we import about uh, 3.5 million barrels a day, most of it from Canada, to the United States. And so it, times have changed. And I think you should pull that SPR down. Strategic and, Petroleum Reserve, yes. draw it down. And, I, I don't see any use for it. And it's our cost in there on it, I believe, is $28 a barrel. So there's a huge profit there, one of the few profit centers the United States government has. <laughs> and and they, they got it kind of by accident. You, uh, but I would, I would pull it down. Uh, you mentioned uh, Canada. There's a lot of debate about the Keystone Pipeline. Recently, Mayor Bloomberg wrote a op- uh, proposal that the United States approve the pipeline, and you've been a big advocate of approving the pipeline, in exchange for Canada's commitment to reduce greenhouse gases. Would that, is that a deal you would take? Well, Canada's a sovereign country, I can, and I've lived in Canada in the 60s and made a lot of money in Canada have friends there. I've made some nice gifts to the University of Calgary. So I feel uh, connected uh, to Canada in a way. But Canada's going to produce their oil. The, the Canadians are, uh, they, they actually, when I worked up there, they were more sensitive to the environmental issues than the United States was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so you're not, I don't know, I don't think you can make that trade. Uh, I interviewed on a podcast, I think is what it's called, that I have an, the ambassador to the United States from Canada. And, uh, and we talked about, the whole thing was over the Keystone Pipeline. And they want to do business with us. I mean, they're our best ally. And, uh, and they are never have a, uh, you know, they're, they're used for their country's not big enough to use the oil they produce, and they like the relationship with us is stable and and all. And but it's uh, no, I, I don't. I wouldn't try, try to make that trade. 
One consequence of blocking the Keystone pipeline has been a lot more oil moving around on rail cars. How do you think that should be handled? Oil it's on a rail. lot better to move the oil in a pipeline than it is in rail cars. Safer. Yes, yeah. it is. But oil is happening, moving around on rail. Should that be changed? Should there be safer cars? What should be done about it? Well, or is it fine you know, the way it is? I mean, we're talking about America. We're talking about business and all. And, and you start uh, saying you can't move all by rail. Uh, oops, it's going to make some unusual areas where there's, you, you can't balance the market without moving the oil. So I think you have to do that. Where do you think oil prices are going to go? You think they're going to go back up? Yes. You see I $100? Think, I think what's going to happen is you'll reach all-time, you're already at all-time high inventories of oil in the United States. And Cushing, which is the pricing point for American oil, Cushing, Oklahoma, it's just, it happened 100 years ago that that pipeline's all kind of intersected at that point in Oklahoma, and that's where they built the tank farms, and they have storage there for, I think that it's, uh, I think it's 80 million barrels, and I do know this, they're up to 56 million in storage now, and you can't ever fill anything up, you know, for the tippy top, yeah. it doesn't work quite that way. You got to leave a little cushion, and they they feel like at sixty five million, they're full. And I mean, to move oil in and out and give you flexibility, you can't just fill it brim full. And so we're real close to filling up cushing, and that's that price is oil in America. It's called WTI, West Texas Intermediate. So when you're sitting there looking at the television. Uh, in the evening, and they give you WTI and Brent. Well, Brent is the global price for oil. It's called Brent North Sea, but it actually is the pricing of oil from the Mideast. And this is just the way it's done, And it, but it's a global price for oil. They don't price you a price for Saudi oil. Saudi oil is caught up in Brent North Sea. One thing we do in this country to, to make uh, gasoline go further, make it cleaner, is put corn into the gas tanks. What, what are your thoughts on corn ethanol into American cars? That's a fabulous idea. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing <laughs> we ever did is to make. I ought to get a hand. Gosh almighty. I, I went Bob Dole, who's a very close friend of mine, and... I talked to a half a dozen senators at lunch in Washington, and when we got them, walked out in the hall. And Bob Dole, he was 10th Cavalry, 10th uh, Mountain Cavalry, and that's the toughest crowd until, uh, until the SEALs showed up, uh, World War II. And he talks to me like he's a sergeant and I'm a private. We walk, <laughs> we walk, out, we walk out in the hall, and he said, you're in there acting like you know more about this than we do. He said, you don't understand about politics. He said, there are 21 farm states and 42 senators, and 42 senators can get anything they want. They want ethanol, and they're not paying any attention to you, and you look like a sap coming up here trying to explain to us what a stupid idea it is. Okay, I said, I got it. And I said, shut up, too. I never said anything about it. <laughs> and, but it, it was a stupid idea. It seriously was. And it, the fuel is not even a good fuel. It's not as clean as gasoline. And, uh, and we are forced to take it, you know, into now they're talking about moving up to 15%. And I, I don't know. 
they've got to stop that. That's, just, that's foolish in so many ways. What else foolish happens in Washington these days? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people talk about you Washington. Don't, don't. Yeah, it's an open-ended question that you do not want my response to. Well, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life is where Washington and this administration. I mean, it's, it's insane is what's going on. I mean, we're circumventing Congress. And it's not good, I'll tell you. The, but you don't want a guy that doesn't have any experience to become president of the United States. I mean, this guy was a community organizer. And and he went from there to senator. That isn't going to give you a lot of, you know, experience. And then all at once he's president of the United States. <laughs> and I can't believe he got it. Uh, he, he won the second time. But in the last six years, under this administration, oil imports have gone down. Domestic uh, oil production has gone up. So is it fair to say that this administration's been pretty good for energy? No, they've been lucky. Uh, no, it just the shale deal, it happened on their watch. They don't even know what they're seeing. They don't, I promise you. I, listen, I go to Washington. I spend a lot of time up there. I'm a good patriotic American. And I try to do something for energy in America. And I'm telling you, you go up there and try to have a five-minute conversation on energy, and it can't happen. Three minutes, you'll run out of everything they know. They can't go past three minutes. I mean, for them to sit down and talk like you and I have right here tonight, impossible. The offshore oil drilling has expanded. Just before the BP well blew up, the administration opened up some of the Atlantic coast to, to offshore oil drilling. Yeah, they drilling things. They didn't open that up before the BP deal. They opened up just recently, which was Georgia and Carolina. Right. Well, that is, nobody's going to spend any money drilling off that area. There's nothing there? I, I don't It's not that attractive, no. You often say you want to see energy leadership out of Washington. What kind of leadership would you like to see? You know, we need an energy plan. Uh, look, just go to the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, is that a decision to be made by the Energy Department? No. The Secretary of State has had control <laughs> of it because it's moving from one country to another. So the Secretary of State has some jurisdiction. Uh, okay. Now, if we export oil, this is a big item here now. As, uh, the, the producers want to have access to the export market. You know who will make that decision? Commerce. Secretary, yeah, right. Commerce. Right. But you think, well, when does the Secretary of Energy get to make a decision. I mean, it's it's not set up right. Structure's not right. And uh, you've got the president is vetoing Congress on the Keystone Pipeline. And that's very clear. That's, uh, that's a bipartisan vote. Uh, and they couldn't override the veto. But you all know all this stuff. But, it, but watch the Keystone Pipeline because I didn't finish my comment about it. Here you are, Canada has, in the oil sands, northern Alberta, they have 250 billion barrels of oil. That's real. That's audited, and it's, that, that'll be within 25 billion of being correct. And you have 
Saudis claim 250 billion barrels, same amount, and they won't let you audit theirs. Guys like me in the oil business think they probably have 175 billion. Still a lot of oil. But here you have oil deposits offered to the United States as big or bigger than Saudi Arabia. And we don't have to have an army, navy. You know, it's there right on our doorstep if we want it. And if we don't want it, it's going to go all the way down to the Gulf Coast and what we don't use, they'll ship out of there and it'll go into the global market. Well, what's wrong with that? I, I don't, they say, well, you're not going to get any of the oil. That's not true. And we do have room in the pipeline to put Bakken crude and take it off the rail and put it in the Keystone pipeline. And I cannot see anything that makes me uncomfortable about the Keystone pipeline. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is T. Boone Pickens, chairman and CEO of BP Capital. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we mentioned fracking earlier, and I want to uh, bring up a video. We have uh, former executive vice president of Mobile Oil, uh, Lou Alstadt, was here last year, and he's talking about fracking. I'd like to have your response to his comments. This is Lou Alstadt from uh, former VP of Mobile Oil. The hydrofracking that you're talking about today is like old conventional drilling on steroids. The industry really hasn't gotten their handle on methane. This is something that surprised everybody, myself included. But when methane escapes, it's far, a far worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So that's former uh, Mobile Oil Executive VP Lou Alstadt saying that methane is a problem. Methane release from fracking is a problem. Which, is that true? Let's go through the steps right quick. Okay, when you frack, you have a vertical hole down to some depth, 8,000 feet, say, and then you turn and go horizontal. And then the hole goes another five or 6,000 feet. So now the horizontal hole is what we're interested in. And we frack in those holes 20 to 40 times. You frack, set a plug, frack, set a plug, frack, set a plug, and come out. Then you go back in and drill all the plugs out and let her flow back to the surface. Up to the point that you have fracked 20 times, there's no methane being used anywhere. Now, okay. you're going to see methane for the first time when you drill those plugs and let her come back, flows back. Now we have methane. And I, coming back on wells, and I listen, I still drill wells and, and, uh, and all. I fracked in my career over a thousand wells. The company I ran, I didn't go out and do every frack job, but the, the, the company I ran, we did, a, I bet we did over a thousand frack jobs. We never had one failure. We never messed up any uh, water reservoir or anything else. And there have been over 800,000 wells fracked. The biggest aquifer in North America stands from Midland, Texas to South Dakota border across eight states. That's the Ogallala, it's Triassic Age, and it's the biggest aquifer in North America. It goes right across my ranch. My ranch is sitting right on top of the aquifer. And we're drilling wells on my ranch continually, and uh, we, we have no fear of messing up the aquifer. But back to methane, you're flowing back the methane, 
when it's coming back to you, you're not flaring. You're not uh, just sending it out in the atmosphere. I'm sure that you could be criticized for some methane that escaped through that process. But you, I don't know what he means. Okay. Uh, you but mentioned that other part came from his PR department, the steroids. Deal. Oh, right. Yeah. Every, uh, every one of us that gets up here in front of you wants to say something clever. And that was one I said, hey, the boss, say it's on steroids, whatever that means. We, uh, we know about steroids here in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> you mentioned water. You wrote that you at one point were the largest land uh, water rights owner in the United States. Uh, is that still true? And what do you think about the future of water? We've got a pretty serious drought here in California. It's been a few years drought in Texas. Okay, I'll, I, this came up in Texas the other day that what are you going to do about water? We've dammed up ever. Uh, creek, every river. Uh, there's no hydro for anybody. That's that's the greatest stuff is hydropower, mm-hmm. and all and that's all been taken care of. We the United States we work the water resources pretty hard, and in Texas uh, that I said the biggest aquifer and it extends from West Texas to South Dakota. That has been used for irrigation. And all some of it municipal use, but n- not any more than ten or fifteen percent of it has. And the question was asked me to choose that: get ready to desal uh, salt water. That's what you're going to do. I don't, I don't know where you're going to get it. And we know uh, I'm, I'm now getting on dangerous ground here with a uh, climate expert on my left, but we don't get the rain that the Corps engineers thought we were going to when they built all those lakes. Yeah, yesterday, Ron Bassett, who's one of my partners, he lives in Granbury, Texas, and I said, uh, Ron, how far is the lake from your dock now? And he said, I can stand on my back porch and see the lake. I said, well, how far out is it? And he said, three miles. And this is Texas Lakes. That's where we are. The The pipeline from Fritch, Texas, is 323 miles long. It goes to Amarillo, Texas. It's up, this up, you know, in West Texas. goes down to La Mesa, Texas. And Lubbock and Amarillo are the two biggest cities on that pipeline. It's all groundwater. And uh, I think DeSal, and you've got some unbelievable... Reservoir of brackish water at three, four thousand feet below the surface. I think start looking at that. And but I would not irrigate in the Panhandle of Texas. Uh, I don't think it's good use of the water. But you have farmers that own the land and they live off that. So you go in and say, "Now you, we don't not going to use your water." No, that that doesn't work either, because you're taking away rights of people. When you do that, what I would do in the Panhandle of Texas, there's six, uh, oh, six million acre feet of water is produced out of there a year. But if you put uh, turbines on there and generated power on that land with those turbines on there, you can't run irrigation pivot. So if a farmer had as much money 
and royalty off the turbines as they had off the farming. I can tell you they would rather have turbines than and work on a growing a corn crop. So we're going to live differently with water in the future. Things are going to change. You are going to do that. That's for sure. But you know, it's uh, I wish I wish that I that the Lord will give me more time to see what happens. I'd like to see what happens in Washington. I'm telling you, if I died five years ago, and my wife died next week, and she came to heaven and brought me up to date on what had happened. <laughs> I would ask, how did this liar get up here? I would not have believed what Sheila told me had happened in the world. I really wouldn't. So I can't, you know, I want to stay here and see this stuff. My, uh, my internist, after my last physical, said, I've got good news and bad news for you. I said, what's the good news first? He said, you're going to live to be 114. I said, what's the bad news? He said, you won't be able to hear or see. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is going to happen uh, in the next presidential election cycle? Got a lot of people jumping in, just getting started. Who do you like? Uh, I'm already on board with Jeb Bush. A lot of people are. Yeah. The, the, uh, uh, the Republicans will win uh, in 16. I mean, you've already seen that. You saw what happened in November. And the American people, they got to have something different than they have now. Uh, all of us are, feel the worst thing you can feel about Washington is lack of leadership. And that's where we are. You're just joining us. Our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is T. Boone Pickens. I'm Greg Dalton. We'll be right back after this break. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. For oil companies, the first step toward addressing climate change is admitting that it exists. Shell Oil Company President Marvin Odom joined us in 2013. Odom said that not only is Shell aware that they're a part of the climate problem, but they are taking steps, slowly, to be part of the solution. It's very clear for us as a company that climate change is real, that humans have an enormous impact on that, and that it requires some sort of action going forward. I think if you look at, the, uh, at the, the policies that we advocate as a company, so getting outside of our, our direct day-to-day -day business, working with governments around the world, the, I'd say the number one element of that advocacy is putting a price on carbon. So we see it as a, as a big enough issue and a big enough risk to where we need that sort of global framework to then drive this market to somewhere different than it's headed right now. Unlike most oil companies, Shell supported California's climate law that put a price on carbon. It's also changing its business. You know, we produce more natural gas now as a company globally than we do oil. And that, that didn't happen by accident. And we can clearly see a universe here where natural gas is going to be preferred over oil. That was Marvin Odom, president of Shell Oil, speaking at Climate One in 2013. This has been a Climate One Minute. Now back to Greg's conversation with T. Boone Pickens at the Commonwealth Club. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome. Hi, I'd like to ask what your thoughts are on the future of wind power in America. Is there a room for growth in wind? You wrote in your book that wind was your biggest career bet, so wind power. It was. I lost $150 million on it. <laughs> but the reason I did is because it's more expensive than natural gas. And wind is priced off the margin, and the marginal fuel is natural gas. And 
very simply, I had to have $6 natural gas to make the wind work. When I got into the wind business, natural gas was $9. Where did I make a mistake? I should have hedged it. I didn't hedge it. I was smart enough to hedge it. But I thought the, uh, the natural gas was going to go up to $15, and then I'd hedge it. But <laughs> then what is that? Is it greed? I'm not sure whether you'd call it greed. I wanted to make more money out of the deal. And I'm generous with the money. I, 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 can I go off here on a point? Sure. The, <laughs> the president gets on TV and says rich people are not paying their fair share. And I, I don't like that statement. I, just, it, uh, I am now 86 years old, and I, I know what this is because I've had them look it up and give me the number. But in my lifetime, I've paid $665 million in taxes. What is my fair share? And I still have a job. I go to work every day. I'm still paying taxes. And when I die, that half my estate will go to taxes. Well, I could get a long face and say, my gosh, you know, I've been working for the government for a long time. They never took one of my losses. And when, uh, you know, when I made losses, I didn't pay taxes. We know how it works. But if I went in some deal and lost and the government's sitting in there as a big partner with me, they never come up with any money. I'm always the one that has to pay. But anyway, go. Next question. Welcome. Uh, good evening. Just across the border from Texas and Mexico, they are liberalizing their energy markets. What do you see for the United States companies and the future of energy in North America if this liberalization comes to pass just in Mexico? Well, I don't believe they'll do what they said they were going to do to start with because in 1938, they expropriated all of, uh, their oil and kicked the companies out of Mexico. That's part of the Constitution. Now they've said they've got to do it. The reason they've done that is because Pemex, the state-owned oil company, is not good enough to find oil and gas. I mean, they're pitiful. They could be ankle-deep in oil and not know it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a sad, sad case, and Mexico is very corrupt. You know that, and I do too. And I was with uh, the president of Mexico uh, now out of office, and this subject came up, and I said, well, the first thing you did is you looked at the best areas you had, and you let PMAX come in and cherry-pick it. PMAX got to pick out what they wanted, before they're going to give it to everybody else. Okay. We'll see how it happens. But, and I hope they find a lot of oil in, in Mexico. I, it'll help their people, it, what the politicians don't steal. So I, but I'm not looking for a lot of oil to be found in Mexico. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Um, you initially said if we even suspect that we're impacting climate, um, we should start dealing with it. And then during the lightning round questions, when, when he asked if we should be proactively taking action to move off of fossil fuels to renewable resources, you answered no. Um, it seemed a little contradictory, or did I not understand? Let me respond to that. I, I remember the question. I remember the no in it. But uh, there's more to it than saying yes, no. And But you're going to go off of fossil fuels in time. Let's just say that, yes, we, we start to prepare uh, for climate issues and everything else. Go ahead and prepare for it. I'm, I'm ready to do that. 
but uh, you will decline and deplete on the oil and natural gas. That's it. You're going to have to go to some other form of transportation fuel or whatever in time. But I would move in that direction. I want to do that. And I have said every time I made a speech, I haven't said it tonight, but listen, I'm a patriotic American. I want American fuel. I don't want OPEC oil. They say, well, the battery, the wind, the solar, all of it, anything American is what I want. But it just so happens you're stuck with, with fossil fuel right now. Gasoline has a lot of tremendous properties. The energy density gasoline is very good as a fuel. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, what do you see are the top three opportunities for the next president and Congress starting in uh, 2017? Top three priorities for the next president and Congress. The first priority, and I don't see a one of these people that are running for president to step up American people and say, we got to get ready for it. We are at war. And and it's what it's going to be. And we are going to have some horrible things happen in the United States. And that this isn't just some old man talking. I've I've gone to the people that I think know a hell of a lot more about this subject than I do. But we're going to have uh, explosions here. We're going to have some things blow up. I've been surprised that it hadn't happened at one of our athletic events or something. But uh, get ready. Uh, it's coming. And I, they don't even talk about this. Do you hear them say anything? Well, you go to some professional sporting events. They're very careful about backpacks and things these they days. Are. Um, they are. And we should be. But, no, I'm talking about these people that are running for president. They don't tell the American people, listen, uh, we got real problems here. This is a different kind of enemy we've ever faced before. Ace Greenberg told me 10 years ago, he said, when you're up against somebody that doesn't care whether they die or not, it has no fear of dying. You got a tough opponent. Because they say there's nothing more dangerous than a teenage man without a job and no future. So uh, let's have our next question. Welcome. Thank you. Do you foresee deflation becoming a problem for the United States? I'm not an economist. These are hard questions for me. (laughs) Uh, You know, you know what a you know what an economist is. That's a guy that didn't have the personality to be a CPA. Welcome. Welcome. Next question for T. Uh, Boone Pickens. Yes. When do you see oil reaching $100 a barrel again? How soon? What year do you think that will happen? I'm on record on December 23rd on Squawk Box, and I said uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, you will be back up uh, to $90 to $100 a barrel. I've changed that since and said 80 to 90 I want to give myself a little room. But I think you could very well be $100 a barrel by the, the end of uh, 16. So our next question for T. Boone Pickens at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Mr. Pickens. Uh, what do you think if the oil prices stay low for too long, what will happen to the OPEC? If oil prices stay low, how does that influence OPEC? Is OPEC losing its grip? Uh, I, we, have, uh, we have hurt OPEC, the United States has, when we went up to 9 million barrels of oil. That made a difference in a kind of relationship. To me, and Dick Cheney, I would say, has straightened me out. He, of course, knows a lot more about world politics than I do. And I said, I'd get out of the Mideast is what I'd do. Because we sit there with the Fifth Fleet, which protects the Straits of Hormuz. There's 17 million barrels a day that comes through there. 
only 1.2 million barrels a day comes to the United States of 17 million. And I said, it's even kind of silly that we're sitting here and we could, we don't have to take one, two. I mean, we can make some adjustments to the United States and take care of that. So our Navy is over there and, I, and who in the hell are we protecting? And you're down now to the, to the OPEC cartel. It's not a cartel anymore. You've got only one swing producer, which were the Saudis, and I've already mentioned this. And the United States has really diluted the power of, of OPEC. You haven't seen it yet, but as this thing unfolds in the next few months, uh, you're going to see how powerful this country is and how powerful our oil and gas industry is in the United States. And are, are all the guys in the oil and gas industry nice, sweet guys like I am? No. Uh, but they're good men, uh, good people that are running those companies. And they're out there. They're working for stockholders, and your stockholders, about every one of you here, are stockholders in all companies. And, and they have to produce for the stockholders. I mean, the stockholders own the company. They understand what their role is, and they're doing a very good job in what they're doing. But what they've done is they've elevated the uh, oil and gas resources in America to where we are tremendously powerful in what this country has. Let's have our last question. Welcome. Okay, quick question. Uh, Robert Schiller, a guy who didn't become a CPA, he became a Nobel Prize-winning economist, says... (laughs) Tell him I'm sorry. I was trying to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) I think now could be a good time to invest in oil. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, Oil, what do you mean? You mean the uh, physical oil, or do you mean in an oil company? He says prices are very low, and there are a lot of reasons to assume they won't stay low. That's what I've bet on. Well, I've already said that I think by the end of the year, you'll be $70 a barrel. Now, I would rather play the commodity than I would the equities. So it's, uh, I doubt that you all are commodity players. So uh, our thanks to T. Boone Pickens, chairman and CEO of BP Capital, for joining us today at the Commonwealth Club. I'd like to thank the Travers Family Foundation for underwriting this program. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening on the radio. Thank you, Mr. Pickens. Come back again and see us. Sure, Greg. It was great. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.